Hello and welcome to episode 22 of the Alfa Romeo Driver Podcast, brought to you by the Alfa Romeo Owners Club. I'm not Guy Swarbrick, I'm Nick Wright, and this week we're turning the spotlight onto Guy to find out a little bit more about the man behind the magazine. Yeah, welcome to episode 22, doing things a little bit differently this week, so I'm I'm going to hand over to our usual panel um, who are going to interview me. So again, I've got Nick Wright, John Griffiths and David Faithful with me this afternoon. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Afternoon, Guy. Afternoon. Good afternoon, Guy. Good afternoon, Guy. So who's who's going to start the interrogation then? So, look, Alphas, it, we know it's, uh, it's why people are listening to this podcast. We're all fanatical about it. But what really got you into Alphas in the first place, Guy? It, it's kind of weird. I remember when... When I interviewed David for, for one of the early podcasts, uh, asked him a similar question and, and he started his answer with the story I always tell people is. And and mine's a little bit like that because I always tell people that my first ever car was a Terracotta 1982 1.5 Alpha Sud Sprint Veloce, which is not technically true because my first car was actually a Morris Marina 1.3 Coupe. Um, that I was, <laughs> my grandfather couldn't drive anymore and, and he offered me his car for, for 50 quid and I didn't have a license at the time and and I drove it a couple of times on lessons with school friends and, and my dad but my dad had a Fiat 1283 3P Coupe which was actually what got me into Italian cars initially um, so I, I would always prefer to have a lesson in, in that than in the marina because um, you could go around corners at more than 20 miles an hour in the Fiat <laughs> That is a bonus. The marina would just skip round the corners. And then for various reasons, it was it was quite a while before I took my test and the the marina was was joyfully turned into a cube of steel at some point or steel and rust. And I, I passed my test. I'd saved up the money to to buy a new car. And I'd done lots of research and it was about the time that unleaded petrol was being phased out and everybody said, oh, the sensible thing to do is to, to buy a diesel. Um, and I I kind of narrowed the list down and and was going to buy a a diesel Ford Sierra and I picked up the local yeah. newspaper and classified ads. Um, unfortunately, of course, the classified ads start with A, and the the, <laughs> the first thing that was in the ads, which was right on my budget, was was this 1982 Alpha Sud Sprint Veloce. And I remembered at that point, I don't know if you remember, just before the Motor Show, the Daily Mail or the Daily Express on different years always used to put produce a, a world book of cars for the motor show and i remember as a kid opening that up and seeing i can i can picture it now um a black sprint outside a um a posh cafe was the kind of press shot and and at that age which would have been probably 12 or 13 i guess um to me alfa romeo ferrari maserati they were all kind of exotic and italian and and much the same so to open the classifieds and discover that I could actually afford the car that I'd kind of dreamed of having um, eight or nine years earlier was just phenomenal. So um, so I was straight up there and and bought it and and took it into work the next day and everybody said that's not a Sierra diesel and I grinned I grinned back and said no it's not. Well to be fair if it was alphabetical you could have ended up with an AC Cobra Club or something. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't think that would have fitted the budget, though. I was thinking Austin Ambassador myself, but you, you got away with that. Yeah, for, fortunately, it came came one before that. Yeah, and and my dad had had two princesses, so there was no way I was ever going to buy another. <laughs> Not a wedge fan. Much maligned. <laughs> I like the old Amber. So that that's brilliant. So you got into your alpha, but how did you discover the club? Um, I think through 
uh, motor racing from what I remember. So I, I was always a big motor racing fan, lived uh, eight or nine miles from Brands Hatch. So I used to go to Brands Hatch regularly. And I, I can remember going down and seeing the, the owners club championship as it was then. And, and this was probably uh, the first couple of times was probably I, I went to Brands on my bikes. This was before I even had the car. But once I had the, the sprint, yeah, there was still sprints and suds racing at that point. Um, so to go there and see a club that was, you know, as enthusiastic about my sprint as I was, it, it just became the obvious thing to do. So uh, I can't remember when I first joined. Someone could probably work it out from uh, from my membership number, but it, it would have been in the the late eighties. Yeah. So you did it similar to me, but I I uh, I saw the Alpha Championship racing at Mallory and then bought an Alpha. Right. So it was just the other way around. <laughs> There you go. Well, and I did laps for a while as well. Outrageous. I I, yeah. I know. I didn't <laughs> renew my membership for a couple of years. And then I I went to my local dealer to test drive a, a 156 sport wagon, diesel sport wagon. I've got this thing about being determined to buy a diesel and ending up yeah. with something else. Um, and I went along the showroom to, to test drive the sport wagon. And they were doing test drives in 147 GTAs, which they just got the their first demonstrator in. Yeah. Um, and and so I left having put a deposit on a on a GTA. Wow! And at, at that yeah. point, so that would have been what two thousand and two, probably. Um, yeah. At that point, I thought, now it's time to join the club again. <laughs> Great stuff. So you got in on the club. Um, obviously, you're a magazine editor today, but come on, what's your favourite bits about it all? I like lots of it, and I, I guess the the strange thing is when I first joined, I was based in Kent when I first joined, and then and then moved to to Berkshire um during the period that I had the the sprint and my 155 afterwards and I never really at that point engaged with the section side of things so mm. I went to a couple of national events went on a, a a couple of different you know treasure hunts and things like that but never actually got involved in 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 the club at a section level but I engaged with the Thames Valley section or oh, probably when I rejoined with the um, with the GTA actually, and I I get a lot out of that. I really enjoy section events and and being part of the um, the organisation behind the section as as well as involved in the club at, at national level and events. I mean, I just I just love turning up to you know a, a venue with six, eight, nine hundred other people who share my strange obsession with. Um, yeah, one one small insignificant brand of Italian motorcars that is just fabulous. You're the club's nine three nine spider registrar as well, aren't you? Amongst other things, I am. How did that uh, your interest and love of that come <laughs> along? Just because you you failed to buy another diesel, or uh, not far off actually. So uh, same same dealer SGT in in Taplow as as was at the time, and I I went to buy a Brera actually, went to buy a two point two JTS Brera. And took it out for a test drive, absolutely loved it, came back, hadn't actually spoken to my wife about it at the time. And so I couldn't give him an answer straight away. So I said I'd give him an answer on the Monday. This was the Thursday. So I spoke to my wife on the Thursday evening and I had to go to London for a, for a job on, on the Friday. And I got out of the tube station having arrived in London and I thought, no, I've, I'm going to have to phone him and tell him I want it. So I called him up and he just sold it. 10 minutes before I called, he'd sold it to somebody else. Um, he said, we've still got the spider that was sat next to it. And I said, I'd, I'd, I'd love one, but my wife would never, ever allow me to have a, a spider. It's just too impractical. So I got home that night, told her the story and she said, oh, I thought it was a spider you were buying. I don't like Brera's. <laughs> <laughs> so I, t I, t 
I took that as a yes. <laughs> and so that was a nice that was my first 939 Spider, which was um, 2007 uh, manual 3.2 V6 Q4. And I had that for about four years Ooh. and I sold it in January. And then I think by March, I decided that I needed to have another one. And it was the biggest mistake I'd ever made. And I actually bought the second one, pretty much bought it over the phone from the Commonwealth Games in, in Brisbane, from the, oh. the media center at the Com Games, because um, I'd found exactly the one that I wanted in blue. So another 3.2 V6 Q4. But I just I just think they're so, so pretty. I, uh, those of you who've seen my Zoom presentation about my my photo career, I talk about some of the jobs that I did with a, an IT website called The Register. And the first photo job I did for them was to shoot the Jaguar F-Type. I think it was a, an S rather than the, the full-on R. And we parked my car next to the F-Type. And the journalist who was writing the story, uh, I, I'm setting up some lights and stuff, and he said, they really are gorgeous, aren't they? And I looked at the F-Type and I thought, it's all right. He said, not that. He said, you're spider. I said, yeah. <laughs> so, Guy, we all, we all know you as our um, editor and uh, virtual racer and uh, general organiser and grammar police. But um, outside of our club then... What is it you do? So we know that you do photography. We know that you seem to travel around a lot and go to cycling events and so on. But what so what what do you actually do? Just clear that up for, for members. So so that's that's a long story. So I my background is in the IT industry and for probably the last well since ninety eight, um, I've been involved in consultancy and training. Um mostly with IT companies training their reseller partners on how to sell stuff. And, and during that time, I started a hobby business as a, a sports photographer. Um, so I got involved in that through my kids who were both fairly high level competitive cyclists. Um, so I, I ended up coming into 2000 and back into 2011, beginning of 2012. Um, I was using up all of my holiday from the day job to travel around the world to track cycling world cups and world championships and various other things and getting to the point where, although I, I, I enjoyed my day job, I enjoyed the photography side much more. Um, and I was uh, having conversations about whether I could have additional time off unpaid to go and do some of these photo jobs. Uh, and then just decided that I could have both. So I left the company that I was, I was managing director of at the time and set up on my own and set it up deliberately so that I could spend, you know, I plan all of my time around my photography job. And then because photography pays so badly, um, continue to do uh, the other job on a, on a freelance basis to, to kind of pay the mortgage and, and do other things. And that's pretty much what I do now. And I, I would say probably 40% of my time is, is photography and, uh, and the magazine. Um, 60% of, of my time spent on the other stuff um, and probably 90% of my income comes from the other stuff. And presumably 90% of your income is spent on photography stuff and cameras and lenses and so on. Um, well, just in case HMRC are, are listening, um, <laughs> the, the photography side of the business is, is profitable. Um, it's, it's not as profitable as the other side. Um, so, yeah, I mean, when I first started, I first World Championships I did was 2008 in Manchester. Um, which I did get paid for. 
And I decided then that I was going to do that every year. And I think the 2009 one I went to without any clients and, and paid for on a credit card and um, and then started picking up clients. But I, I, I did quite quickly get to the point where I decided there was no point in doing it if I was funding it because it, mm. it wasn't a hobby. It was something that I, I wanted to take seriously. And I also, I, I didn't want to feel that I had a, an unfair advantage against other photographers because I didn't need to make money and they did. And therefore I could win business by undercutting them. Yeah. Um, so, so I don't do a job unless I make money doing it, but I make, I, you know, I make the same kind of margins as other photographers do not the kind of margins I make in the day job. But I have noticed um, you and I rock up at motorsport events or um, big Alfa or Italian car events. And I, and I'm proudly, carrying my Canon EOS 600D with my 7200 lens and, and your uh, setup is significantly more expensive looking and about three <laughs> foot long. So presumably for someone who's listening, if they wanted to get into motorsport photography or similar, there is a significant investment required, isn't there? I mean, I, I, I like to take, I consider I take snaps rather than photographs. And I think there's a notable difference between my photos and your photos, clearly. But can someone actually get into photography in a, in a sort of a semi-professional way on a limited budget, do you think? Or is that just not possible? These yeah, days? They, they, no, you certainly can. And, and, and I did. I mean, I, I actually, I started selling photos uh, when I was a mountain bike racer. Um, and I started taking mountain bike photos actually on a digital compact camera, moved to a what they call a bridge camera, a, a big zoom compact camera, and then bought a consumer level uh, DSLR. And I've just gradually upgraded over time. I think that the two big differences between consumer equipment and the pro equipment, the, the first one is that you can probably take as good a picture with the consumer stuff as you can with the pro stuff. Um, but you can do it much more consistently with the pro level equipment. It's just much more reliable. Um, you've got more flexibility over the, the settings. Uh, and I, I, particularly on the cycling stuff where, you know, that's a motor race, you've got 20 minutes, 25 minutes for a race. Any car that you're trying to get a picture of is going to come around multiple times. So you've got multiple opportunities. If you're shooting the, the sprint for a client, a, a track cycling event, you've pretty much got one opportunity to get it right. Team sprint, they start with three, go to two, then go to one. And nobody wants a picture of anything other than three riders together. So you've basically got to get that on the lap they come around the first time. Uh, and the pro equipment helps from, from that perspective. The other, the other side of it is it's much, much better built. So you can, you can abuse it much more. You can, you can treat it like a tool, focus on doing the job, and if you, you know, if you bang it against a concrete wall as you're walking down towards the track and, you know, it's hanging off a strap on the side and it just bangs into the wall, it's just going to take a chunk out of the wall. Whereas if you, if you do that with a consumer level camera, it's probably, you know, the lens will snap off the front of the, the body and the, the body will be knackered. Um, and, and it's more waterproof and, and all of those things. So it's exactly the same. You can drill a hole with a, a 20 quid corded drill from B&Q but most tradespeople will have a big expensive metal bodied higher power higher torque drill um, and it's for much the same reasons. So I certainly enjoyed your photos in Alpha Driver magazine and 
sorry, still do, but uh, particularly like the ones from 2018 with British touring cars. And I know you were the guy that was stood by the side of the track and, uh, you know, actually doing them. And we weren't kind of buying those photos in or anything, but uh, they were terrific. You had a bit of fun with that as well. That that was great for me because, um, again, people who've, who've seen the Zoom presentation will have heard this story. But one of the big challenges of being a motorsport photographer is that you really need accreditation to get into the right places to be able to take the best shots doesn't mean you can't take shots from elsewhere and, and we've got members like David Harvey who take fantastic shots from spectator areas um, but you really do need that access and the only way you can get that access is to demonstrate that you're experienced and can be trusted because you've had that access before so getting in for the first time is really really difficult and and so really although I've been trying for best part of 20 years it was becoming the magazine editor and being able to prove to the BTCC that I had an outlet for the photos. They were going to be used. They were going to be seen by thousands of people um, and that, that I knew what I was doing. Um, and again, the, the, the first BTCC race I covered, they gave me media center access, but they didn't give me trackside access. So I had to shoot through the fence. Yeah. But I then sent them proof that those pictures had been published yeah. and that they were good. And then I got full accreditation after that. So it's, it's a gradual process. Is that what you call a catch fence 22 situation? It is. That's very good, Nick. <laughs> I'm going to steal that for <laughs> the next, next version. I've been writing about that for some time now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's worth uh, the effort. Talking in the magazine, talking in the magazine, guys, that you're the editor of, obviously you get a lot of compliments for it and uh, it does very well what are uh, your thoughts on how the development that that's yeah. going you you must be happy with it but yeah i am I, I think we we did a fairly major redesign for what the february 2018 edition wasn't it with the the stelvio on the the front cover um and that was i i think was quite different from uh, the issue before um, and, and there was a lot of work involved in that. And I think, you know, we 99% of the feedback we got on that was, was positive. Um, and I think if you, if you compare that issue to a current one, you won't see the same um, huge changes, but we are changing things all the time. So things like the, um, the from the archive uh, feature at the back, looking back through um, similar themes in in previous magazines in the archive. Um, there's a few little design differences that have have kind of evolved over the time from there. I guess at probably at some point in the next couple of years, it will probably be worth doing another major overhaul just to to keep it fresh. The the other thing that I tried to do when I took over was to move from being very reactive and and whatever came in was what made it into the magazine and be a bit more proactive and actually think about what do we want in the magazine over the next year who are the best people to write that from you know the the pool of of members we've got that that write stuff regularly and and when do we want to put that in so we've done a lot more multi-part things so bigger articles but split into into chunks and and, and we've done a lot more themed things so there's a spider theme to the the current issue which isn't entirely accidental. There were actually a couple of articles that came in that happened to fit the theme that hadn't been commissioned. But the plan was always, it's winter, let's give people an excuse to think about 
nicer weather and uh, and think about you know spiders so that's probably the the a bigger change in the way the magazine comes together than the design was yeah i, I think i still i still really enjoy the magazine although it comes across as extremely professional in the layout and general content it's great that there's proper amateur content going in there as well you know and yeah. uh, I, I think you probably agree yeah and i i think the thing that's amazed me this year is uh, i put a an appeal out in i don't think it was the february issue it must have been the april issue because february we didn't really know how how bad things were going to be mm. um asking people for for content and my big fear was that nobody would have done anything so nobody would have anything to write about yeah and you know not not only did we have to expand the size of the issue to to include all the member content that came in at one point we were holding over five or six articles every issue yeah which which gave us a great head start on the next one but you know i was was having to go back to members and saying thanks very much it's a fabulous article um you're not going to see it in the next issue and actually it might not be in the one after that because the, the other thing you're always wrestling with is the mix of content so we try to have something on modern alphas you know something on future classics as they might be called uh something on real classics and if we can get something on um on pre-war historic alphas we'll do that as well so if if the five or six extra ones we've got are all about 105 series then we probably don't want to carry all five of them over to the next issue either we want to split those up over two issues and and change the mix around it's tricky isn't it because we've got this churn in the club of membership of maybe 18 percent new people each year and those of us here, all of us on the call, are, are um, long-standing members, and we remember stuff across many moons. But I have to always remember, for some people, this is the first thing they've read. You know, they, so it needs that variety, doesn't it? If it was all about it one thing, then it might switch people off. And and probably the probably the most frequent complaint we get is, you know, you haven't covered my model for the last three issues. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and as time goes by and the, the number of models in Alpha's history gets longer and longer, you know, it's, it's harder and harder to include everything. I mean, uh, fortunately, the, I think the last time we had, we had two complaints in the letters page at the same time about the lack of 916 coverage. Yeah. And of course, although I do commission stuff, a lot of what we've got, we've got because that's what people have sent in. Yeah. Um, and, and by pure chance, we had a couple of 916 articles that had come in that i was able to put in the same issue as the letters saying we don't ever cover the 916 um but we certainly don't deliberately exclude anything you know oh, no. new old or anywhere in between no. um and, and if if there are members out there who feel that their uh, their interests are underrepresented then by all means either write something and we'll include it or, or write to us and say, I'd really love to see a feature on this. I'm not the person to write it. Yeah, yeah. But I'd love it if somebody else did, and, and we'll do it. I think I did a count the other day. There was there's at least ninety different types of alpha since uh, 1950. So yeah, trying to keep everybody happy is not so tricky. Uh, not not so easy, rather. Well, and if we if we're lucky, we're going to cover. Yeah, we're going to cover ten or twelve <laughs> of those in any issue. I do think there's opportunities. I know, Guy, you and I have spoken at length about this. That. Um, <clears throat> we're determined to um, do quite a bit of a revamp in the new year on the website and so on. So I, th- I think there's opportunities for us, isn't there, with um, tie-ins or linkages or whatever the correct term is between 
the magazine, the website, you know, online content and so forth to, to really sort of glue things together. So you could do, you know, March is a theme of something and we can link all of our, all of our channels together. We don't really have that opportunity now because the website's a bit um, sporadic best we don't we don't really have any newsletters or bulletins in between magazines so people sort of sit and wait for the magazine and then it either has the thing they want in it or it may not um and then they've got to wait another two months so i think i think we can get much smarter at this can't we in the new year or well over the coming year or so we can and yeah i'm i'm a huge fan of of a paper magazine and i would never want to see that go away and i think actually you know there are things that you can do in a magazine that you'll never be able to replicate online there's something about a printed photograph in particular which is just better than seeing it on screen but but one of the most as a photographer one of the most heartbreaking things i do every issue is sit down with an article that's been sent in and i've got 30 or 40 photos yeah and i've got room for six of them and and yeah i I, i'm looking at them and thinking yeah People would love to see that one, but I've got to put this one in. So that one's going to have to be held over. And, and those kind of things and, and things like yeah. show reports and stuff. You know, we could have um, a longer show report talking about more cars than we can do in the magazine and a much, much bigger gallery of, of cars on the website than yeah. we ever could do in the magazine. And that doesn't mean you wouldn't cover it in the magazine, yeah. but you'd kind of have the paper version no. and then you'd have the the extended or the different online version. Um, so yeah, that Sorry, that's something I've enjoyed with the revamped website is the uh, the, uh, the the better gallery, as it were. There, with uh, certainly from the events I wasn't able to get to this year, that's been really good. The other thing we've talked about on and off is is having more technical articles in the magazine. So kind of how to articles, and we do do it every now and again but i think the problem is you know you've got 90 models over 110 years so you've got a proportion of the magazine readership who are only interested in some of those 90 and then if you pick any one of those at random only a proportion of the people who are interested in that model are interested in how to change the multi-air filter um and, and some things are important to put in there and they have you know interest across multiple models so stuff around problems with engines is actually often much more applicable because it might have arisen in a mito but it applies to a julietta yeah. or it might have arisen in a 156 but it applies to all 16 valve twin sparks mm. or, or whatever um but online allows us to do stuff that it's easier to target mm. at the right people and it's easier for people who aren't interested to ignore it without thinking, well, that's six pages of my 90 page magazine that have been taken up with something that is arcane and of yeah. no interest to me. And uh, so rather than deprive people of that, because it's not a great fit for the magazine, use another yeah. channel to get it to them, which is not to say we won't have technical stuff <laughs> in the a, magazine. It's... Um, it's just that it's, it's probably not the best uh, vehicle for most of it. So then, the first one was it was a was a beautiful little alpha sprint so come on lottery win question a reasonable lottery win not 175 million uh what what would you have what would you have that, that is so difficult yeah <laughs> i on the on the one hand i i do need a practical everyday car um so i i, I think a 
a Stelvio Quadrifoglio would probably be on the list just as as the Ooh, as nice. the daily hack. <laughs> and, and then uh, the, the list is literally endless. I'd love to have another Alphasud or another Alphasud sprint or both. Yeah. I, and I think although at, at one point I used to look at old men in convertible cars and and chuckle to myself. <laughs> Um, now I am an old man in a convertible car. I I I really do love a spider. I quite I, I quite like to be you know Spider Man and have um, yeah an eight C spider, a four C spider. Um, I'll probably upset a few people now because I would probably have a series one, a series two, and a series four one hundred five spider, um, and 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 a cool. Julietta spider. Series three, it, it's not doesn't quite do it for me yet, but I'm sure I'm no, sure I get. See, that. I like those. I like those. They're probably the only one that I, the, the only spider that I can think of that I, I wouldn't really want. Although I'd have the the coupe version in a in a, a blink, um, is the RZ. Um, I just mu yeah. much prefer the the SZ. So I'd have an SZ as well. Yeah, I like the roof. I like the roof line. I like yeah. the RZ for its rarity value. Yeah, so. I, the, I think my problem with the RZ is the first one I ever saw was a yellow one, and and it uh -huh. just looks so much like a skip that. <laughs> outrageous um but no I, I i can i can see the letters i can see the letters <laughs> coming in now guy you're gonna edit yeah <laughs> you're, you're gonna have to edit that you can't leave that in uh, maybe, maybe that'll go on our outtakes um, podcast yeah i wouldn't if i had an RZ, a yellow rz i wouldn't leave it with the roof down parked anywhere <laughs> don't know what you'd find in it afterwards if nothing else i think nick we've we've Got his birthday presents sorted, and he needs a Spider-Man outfit. Obviously, well, that that um, the the current front cover was a, a bizarre story. So that um, was sent in as an entry for the photo competition, ah. and it was sent in at four o'clock on the closing date ah. for entries, and went into my spam folder. So I looked towards the end of the day to see if any more had come in, and they hadn't. Um, so we then. Did the shortlist and did the judging and everything else and then a month or so later i cleared out my spam and i found that picture in a in in my spam folder and i thought that's a shame because that that would have made yeah. it to the shortlist and no no question about it so the whole winter spider themed issue actually has its genesis in me finding that photo and thinking now that's got to be a cover at some point yeah. that's just such a a stunning image um, cracking cover well, that's it for this episode. Thanks very much to Nick, John and David for uh, the interrogation. As always, we'll be back in two weeks' time on the 17th of January at 1.30, this time with a genuinely interesting guest. Don't forget you can find us on the club website, on iTunes, on Spotify and all good purveyors of podcasts. So until then, stay safe. <laughs>